for those of you who don't know me, my name is Glenn Ryder, and I am chair of the Board of Trustees of the Kessler Foundation. On behalf of my fellow trustees, Roger DeRose, president and CEO of the foundation, and the entire staff of the Kessler Foundation, I'm delighted to welcome you and to thank you for joining us this evening. According to the federal government, 56 million Americans suffer from one or more physical or cognitive disabilities, which equates to approximately 17% of the population of the United States. The disabled comprised an underserved and in many ways low profile segment of the population. The focus of the Kessler Foundation is precisely on this population, that is people with disabilities. The Kessler Foundation has dual missions that are embodied in the seven words in our logo, which are changing the lives of people with disabilities. First, the Foundation supports and partners with other nonprofit organizations and businesses to provide employment opportunities for people with disabilities and to help them to otherwise engage in the communities in which they live. Second, the foundation through its in-house staff of scientists and physicians conduct, uh, conducts cutting edge research to improve the lives of people afflicted by spinal cord injuries, traumatic brain injuries, MS, or stroke among other disabilities. This evening, which is our second annual research event, showcases research by the foundation to help people to claim their lives after suffering strokes. Hence the title for our program tonight of Life After Stroke. I'm, I'm very confident that you'll find this evening's program to be informative and inspiring. The Kessler Foundation depends upon financial resources from three sources to fulfill our missions. Income from our endowment, grants from federal, state, and nonprofit agencies and organizations, and thirdly, donations. Tonight's program is not a fundraiser. Rather, it's intended to be a so-called friend raiser or a community building event. You know, we're, we're looking to expand our network of of friends who find our work for the disabled to be compelling. You know, we hope that we can spur you to get involved in some fashion in the work of the foundation. That said, we, we do hope that you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the Kessler Foundation so that we may continue to change the lives of people with disabilities. It is, it's now my privilege to introduce uh, John DeLuca, our Senior Vice President of Research, who will make a few brief remarks and then introduce Steve Adubato, the moderator of tonight's program and a long-term friend of the Foundation. So thank you very much. Thank you, Glenn, and good evening, everybody. Welcome here to our event this evening where we're going to talk about recovery from stroke. Uh, it's a topic, if not all, 
what many of us know too much about, perhaps. Let me, let me start by just telling you a few uh, facts. Every 40 seconds, a person in the United States suffers from a stroke. More than 7 million people in the United States have survived a stroke. And stroke is a leading, a leading cause of serious long-term disability. And one of the main functions of the Kessler Foundation is to improve the lives of people who have such disabilities. And tonight we'll be talking specifically about stroke. So our scientists and researchers here at the Kessler Foundation, with the support of generous donors, study how to help people regain their mobility and to regain their cognitive functions in such a way after stroke that they can live as independently as possible. So you'll see tonight that they, the kinds of tools that our scientists use, the technologies that result and lead to new treatments, such as robotics, which you'll see tonight, and such as prism adaption therapy to, to help some of the what we call hidden disabilities that are so disabling in everyday life for people with stroke. The idea of these technologies is to help reform the brain so that the brain can regain some function and independence. Now our scientists don't just conduct this research for the sake of research or knowledge. But our goal here is to conduct the next generation of treatment so that our research leads to changes in practice changing in, cl in clinical work here at Kessler Institute, around the nation, or around the world. That is our goal, not just for research to understand the brain. We want to help people with disabilities, in this case tonight's stroke. So um, already I can tell you that the work we've, had, we've done has had a profound effect on individuals, and you'll hear about that tonight. We're really happy about that. So I know you're looking forward to the program. So uh, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce to you our distinguished panel moderator. We're very fortunate to have with us tonight Dr. Steve Arubato. He's a broadcaster, author, and motivational speaker. He's a distinguished visiting professor at New York University, Emmy Award-winning anchor for 13 WNET and NJTV, and a syndicated columnist. Steve regularly appears on the Today Show, CNN, Fox, AM 970, and NPR as a media and political analyst. He is the author of Making the Connection, what, what, we're, what, we're, what We're Thinking, Speak from the Heart, and You Are the Brand. His soon-to-be-published book is entitled Lessons in Leadership. I'm very pleased, and please join me in welcoming Steve Arubato. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Doctor. It is my honor my pleasure to be here this evening. Um, this is a great group of people. I had a chance to interview just about everyone here um, and the other two very distinguished panelists I've met before. Um, Kessler Foundation is an extraordinary organization. Um, when you're in the media, most of the work that you do is challenging and questioning people often in public life who uh, we expect to come up with the answers, politicians, whomever, government officials. But I will say this, <clears throat> since my first uh, meeting with Roger uh, a couple of years back, 
and then interact, interacting with the board and the staff. I will tell you that what I've come to realize is that very often we look, we look in the wrong direction for the answers. And I will say that every time I've engaged with the folks at Kessler Foundation, the right questions are asked, the right people are brought together to engage in conversation and debate and discourse about those difficult questions. And I will tell you, meaningful answers and important research findings come out of that. So for me, not just as a broadcaster, but as a citizen of this state and this nation, um, I want to say thank you to the team at Kessler Foundation, to Elaine, to Roger, to Dr. Luca, to everyone. And so before we go any further, all of you, friends of Kessler Foundation, this foundation deserves a great round of applause. So um, I'm going to do this. I, I'm going to introduce our panel. And I got to know some of them. Um, and you're going to meet some other folks who are in the front row who are going to participate as well. But um, I'm going to go a little bit beyond what it says right here. First, young lady on my left, Carol Moskowitz is a PRISM adaptation treatment participant. She's also nurse. She's an aficionado of valuable research information. I just got to interview her, and I asked her one question, and five minutes later, I was still listening to valuable and important information. And she is someone who I will tell you believes in research, believes in disseminating that research, and we're honored to have her with us tonight. Applaud for Carol. <laughs> Dr. O'Park, it is an honor to have you with us, the Director of Geriatric Rehabilitation at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Research, scientist in stroke rehabilitation research at Kessler Foundation. I dare you to see that on one business card. Let's hear it for Dr. O'Park. Um, I'd like to introduce Dr. Karen Nolan. Um, no particular order, don't worry about it. Karen's been so helpful to us in so many ways. Um, she has been interviewed by us several times on public television. She was with us tonight helping us try to understand the exoskeleton in ways that I will tell you, hearing it is one thing, seeing it is another. And by the way, thank you, Howard, so much. People will meet you in a second. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Karen Nolan's research, excuse me, senior research scientist in human performance engineering research at Kessler Foundation. <laughs> and at the same time, uh, you have them with you? She sure does. I don't think you go anywhere without them. Last time in our studio at PBS, um, Dr. Barrett brought these in and people said, what are those? I said, don't worry about it. Just get behind the camera. Everything will be all right. Um, and Dr. A.M. Barrett, Director of Stroke Rehabilitation Research at Kessler Foundation, has taught so many about these goggles, these prism goggles. And I will tell you, um, and the patients that you've brought to us who have talked about them, so much work needs to be done in educating so many about what is possible. And the person leading the way in that effort is Dr. A.M. Barrett. Put your hands together. Um, it is my honor to introduce a, um, a gentleman who, uh, from Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> former middleweight boxer, former yes. firefighter, yes. National Guard. He is uh, using the exo 
study participant. He is a fighter in every sense of the word. He never gives up. Put your hands together for William Bo James. And finally, Dr. Kong is with us, who is the director of Outpatient Stroke Services, Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Put your hands together for Dr. Kong. Um, this will be very interactive, very dynamic, very substantive. There are a couple pieces of video I know we have as well that will add to this discussion. And the reason that's so important, sometimes video slows things down, not here. These videos will help demonstrate graphically the story that we're trying to tell. Dr. Barrett, let me ask you, um, Dr. DeLuca talked about these hidden disabilities. Be specific and talk specifically about spatial neglect. Well, you know, I think that most of us think that when somebody has a stroke that what's wrong is that they have paralysis, right? And we can see paralysis. Paralysis is a big problem, and we're going to learn more about treatments for paralysis. We need better treatments for it. But oftentimes, when somebody's had a stroke, they may have something go wrong that doesn't show. So we hear about, in our Kessler Foundation, people who have difficulty with memory. We hear about problems with communication, such as aphasia. But what if simple things like reaching for something to pick it up, or putting on you know, our clothing, putting on glasses, were impossible because we couldn't figure out where we are, are in space, what our body is doing at any particular moment. And we have, I think, a, a little video that talks more about this problem. But this difficulty, spatial neglect, is kind of a, a disorder of the GPS inside of us. Mm. So we can find our way to the simplest things in daily life. And this video with Dr. Sandra, excuse me, Dr. Gupta from, mm -hmm. from CNN will help us. When something goes wrong with your brain, usually you know it. A big alarm bell goes off. I can't speak, I can't move my arm. But there is one kind of brain damage that doesn't ring any alarms. It's extremely debilitating, but patients aren't aware of it, so they don't ask for help. It's called spatial neglect, and it can occur after a stroke. Dr. A.M. Barrett is studying spatial neglect, how to spot it and how to treat it using a very weird pair of goggles. Spatial neglect after the right brain is damaged is one of these hidden disabilities. So what it is is a problem with the system in the right brain that helps us to know at all times where our body is in relationship to the environment. What is life like for somebody who has this? So a man may shave on the right side and not shave on the left side. Um, a woman may put on makeup on the right side of the face and not put it on on the left side. And I've heard that people will, will not eat the left food on the left side of their plate. Exactly. So if I was neglecting mm -hmm. this part of my world, if you will, over here, does it mean I'm not seeing it, not hearing it? Neglect itself is not a vision or hearing problem. So if you like, I can give you an example. When you and I look at these pictures, this star and the cube and the flower, we see both sides of it. And this person who's copied it over here is able to do that. But then this person who has spatial neglect attempts to draw, um, he or she just doesn't see that left side of that figure. How often does this occur uh, after a stroke? Oh, it's pretty common. Um, probably about half of people who have a right brain stroke, maybe up to 30% of people who have a left brain stroke. And if you think about the huge number of people who have stroke, that means that we've got more than 300,000 people mm -hmm. probably in the U.S. now who have chronic spatial neglect. 
Is it dangerous to have spatial neglect? Oh yeah, it's very, very dangerous. That person goes out and tries to drive, or person could definitely have a fatal accident because the oncoming traffic is there on the left side. Is it treatable? Yes, oh, most definitely. The approach we've been using actually uses off-the-shelf prism technology, optical prism technology. The idea came from just a very simple idea that if people had a problem with one side of space, well, couldn't you shift the image into the good space? And I can show you a little bit of that if you like. I'm going to ask you to point to the middle of your chest. Okay. <laughs> and then just point to the pen. I know Go you like can this. do it. Okay. There you go, perfect. And touch it, actually. I touch Go it. ahead, yeah, and then over here. And you did great. So now we're going to do some training. Okay. And go ahead and put the goggles on comfortably. Okay, I want you to just take your right hand again and just go ahead and touch the center of your chest and go ahead and touch the pen. Ah. I missed it that time. I missed it because the goggles had shifted the world a few degrees to the right. But watch what happens after I do it a couple of times. Okay, just keep trying to do it fast. Good, you better. Good, you got it that time. I That's interesting how... how Good, um, see how quickly you adapt it. Yeah. So what's, when you say I adapted quickly, what, what do you, what's happening? So what has happened is that your visual motor system is adjusted its 3D coordinates and um, so that you can be accurate even though what you're seeing has been shifted. After just a few seconds, my brain had automatically reshifted the world back to the left. But now watch what happens when I take the goggles off. So I want you to go ahead and just close your eyes and um, just take the goggles off, touch your chest, the center of your chest, and now open your eyes and touch the pen quickly. There you go. Wow. <laughs> so you learned. <laughs> Good. So I adapted that quickly. Yes, and I didn't have to tell you anything. Um, automatically, just by making that pointing movement, you adapted. With people who have spatial neglect, just 15 or 20 minutes of this training, just like you just did, a day for about 10 days, so over two weeks, can improve their ability to um, orient leftward. People go back to driving. Um, people are able to you know, live independently. It seems so simple. Yeah, it's you know, deceptively simple. With Everyday Health, I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Be well. Now, am I going to be doing this all day now? I hope <laughs> not. Let's try. Let's Did I already, there already there you go. Down. You're good. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, Dr. Gupta is one of the best um, medical uh, professionals on, on, in broadcast today, and we thank him for participating. Uh, let me ask you, doctor, and we have two participants in the study who are here today. Um, biggest message that you would ask people to take away from that? Dr. Gupta says it's so simple, right? And it's so, really, these are not expensive equipment. You know, we were talking before, it's much cheaper than a whirlpool or a, even an exercise bike, but they're not being used yet in the rehabilitation setting. They're not. Right. And I asked you before, I asked the doctor, how expensive are these? And what was your explanation? Not. Not. <laughs> and you also compared it to? Um, well, think about a machine to stimulate the brain or think about, you know, um, a bed. It's a good deal. Bed. Right. It's <laughs> a good deal. Good deal. Uh, let me ask this young lady right here. Uh, this is Carol Moskowitz. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Carol Moskowitz is there. This is uh, Audrey Sobolski. Audrey? I, I can tell you when I talked to you before. Audrey, it says here that she's a great-grandmother and uh, she ran a 5K race at 80 years of old, uh, yeah, you did. Very slowly, it doesn't matter, but you ran a 5K race uh, at 80, and then at 82, I'll get to you, Carol, I promise. Um, and then at 82, she had the stroke. You have worn these goggles. 
you have this spatial issue on the left side. What have these goggles done for you? They made me aware of everything on my left side. I can, I can see everything now. It encompasses everything, my vision. I used to, if somebody came up to me on the left, I couldn't see them. I didn't know they were there. I'm aware of them now. I'm aware of everything on my left now, which I wasn't before. Made a huge difference. I beg your pardon? Made a big difference. Oh, a huge difference. Yeah. Is it, I stopped walking into things. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Carol, let me ask you this. You, you were saying that you don't get how people choose not to be in the study, but that's another story. What have they done for you? Well, she's interesting to me because... See how she just takes the microphone? She's <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I'm, I'm going to give it up anyway. Go ahead. She's the path I'm going to follow. I'm not there yet. And uh, Dr. Barrett insists on sitting on the left. You know. <laughs> In my... <laughs> but what do you see on your left right now? Well, it's foggy, and I see Dr. Barrett. But I make myself look there. And part of the participation was to make me acutely aware to the fact that I wasn't doing that. Even though everybody was bugging me, looked at the left, and you know, rubbing my wheelchair, wondering why it wouldn't go forward because I'm taking off part of a Kessler um, woodwork. <laughs> What's going on? What's wrong with this the crappy wheelchair? I finally realized it was my eyes. So I'm very happy that uh, I don't think I'll be a grandmother that many times. No, but, she's a uh, great grandmother. Oh, great. Well, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> or better. To be. <laughs> I mean, more impossible. But, uh, but that's, yeah, I'm a walker. I'm a long-distance hiker. I'm a cyclist. And uh, suddenly this whole picture that was my whole person became a jigsaw puzzle. And one of the biggest missing things was the vision on the left. It's made a big difference for you when you wear the goggles. Yes, yes. And I was very happy when I was a younger researcher with these wonderful pictures of brain plasticity. And I went, ah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's an example of why it makes a difference. Yeah. Thank you, Carol. Um, Dr. Nolan, you want to shift gears? Let's talk about a different kind of research, some different progress that has been made. Let's talk about the exoskeleton. Um, talk to us about exactly what it is, what it's for, and how much progress has been made through this research. So just about two years ago, through a donation, the Kessler Foundation received the first powered exoskeleton to use for the stroke population. Um, so. Together, myself and Dr. Opark worked together to implement the device right into the clinical setting. So the device includes an exoskeleton. So some of you saw it walking around. It's a backpack. It has two frames that go down outside the outside of the legs. And it has a motor at the hip on each side and a motor at the knee on each side. And then it's supported underneath the feet. And the goal is for it to help you take powered steps. But not just to go for a ride in taking powered steps. The goal is to help the brain work with the device and to help the person's volitional movements or their voluntary movements work with the device. So oftentimes in stroke, you have hemiplegia or weakness on one side. It could be paralysis on one side. And the goal of the exoskeleton is to adjust to that paralysis to provide power when needed to help move the limb to help you walk. 
Jump in, Dr. O'Park. Yes. So this is a really, uh, all our rehabilitation is, core training about the rehabilitation is we try to make the patient stand up and then move. That's really the focus of the rehabilitation. And sometimes it's not an easy job. So personally, my father had a stroke. And he had a left brain, a right brain stroke, so the left sided weakness. He had a neglect, and on the top of it, he was he was paralyzed. So the therapist was not able to lift him up, and literally, we needed four people, like just to make him stand up. And then while my father was lying down in bed, and then all these complications of the deep vein, you know, blood clots in the leg, pneumonia, pressure sore, all these things, and then obviously he lost all the muscle powers. Here, with this intervention, you can literally make my father, a patient like my father, who can stand up the day, a few days after the stroke. And that's a huge, huge impact. That had, and Bo, let me ask you, Bo, you, um, you had your stroke when? February of 15? Oh, 15, yes. Describe your life before, then, because also Bo has been in the exoskeleton and he tells a compelling story about it. Your life before. I before, you know, I, I was always in the gym, you know, training fighters, got trained fighters. I was in the gym. And then one day, actually, when I had the stroke, actually I was in the ring, in the gym, moving around one of my fighters. Next day I know one of the coaches like, stop, hold up, stop. Everybody like, yo, what's the matter? What's the matter? I said, well, Bo, you ain't putting your hand back up to, to catch the punch. And then he said he knew something was wrong, so he called the ambulance and they took me out to the hospital. We're about to see some video, Bo, of the exoskeleton. Describe the first thing. You were telling me before, we're doing a public television special, you should know, on tonight, on the research, excuse me, on why it's important. And Bo was a great interview. The first time you put it on, describe it. I first time I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was going what was going to happen. I'm like, wow, what is this? And now, and now it helped me out a lot. I'm getting to move around much better independently. You know, I'm just using a cane now. You know, when I first after when I first got to it, though, I was I really couldn't move at all walking up. But that thing helped me, like to help me get walk much better and everything now. So I love it. I love the XO. You love it. Yes. What are you doing, a commercial here? <laughs> <laughs> and, and persistence and dedication has its place. Doctor, set up this video we're about to see. So what you're going to see is two different methods of gait retraining. And the first is a traditional method of gait retraining where it's... A what kind of training? Traditional gait retraining. Gait retraining, they, I'm sorry. Sorry, walk retraining. So the way that you would retrain someone to learn to walk after they've had a stroke. So you actually have to relearn or regain the ability to walk. And so what happens in the clinical environment is the therapist manually moves the limbs. So that could require manual assistance at the trunk. It could require actual manual manipulation of that limb to bring it through or to take that step. And so they lose the ability to independently take that next step. And what you're looking at is a physical therapist on a rolling stool helping to advance that limb, taking a step, the patient loads that limb, they then take the next healthier side and take the next step. And what you're looking at is the traditional environment that gait is retrained in the clinical setting in the rehabilitation, throughout the rehabilitation process. And what you see is it's a very manual procedure for the therapist. You see that there's 
a slight alignment problem where the foot is sort of externally rotated or pointing slightly outward, so the hip is slightly outward. And so the, the movements are not every time in plane or necessarily in the right uh, direction of movement that we're looking for. And then you see in the beginning of the video, he has a little bit of a destabilizing event where his trunk comes forward. So not only is the physical therapist required to move his limbs through, they're also required to keep them safe, upright, and off the floor. And so control of that trunk is also an issue because they need to keep that trunk upright in order to be stable and take that next step. Dr. Kant, jump in here and share your perspective as well. Uh, I feel that um, the medical research is not complete until we have an uh, opportunity to be able to apply clinical setting to be able to help the patients to maximize their function and recovery. So oftentimes the patients who sustain a stroke, you will have a weakness on the opposite side of the, the brain. And initially when patients start uh, walking training, that limb affected side is weak and until now we're able to utilize the compensatory strategy to be able to help them achieve balance to be able to walk. But my patients give me a feedback with the exoskeleton uh, exercise uh, protocol that we utilize in therapy that it gives them confidence be able to achieve a more upright position. So patients who have a chronic back pain feels that their back is being stretched and be able to utilize this uh, latest technology to apply it in therapy. And I think that they could also uh, monitor their amount of steps that they are able to uh, step the day before, so next, next time they utilize this uh, device, that they could actually do more. So the, they tell you, you, you did 500 steps. So <clears> next day their goal is to do 600. And then I think that they also feel confident and, and then excited to utilize the latest technology to be able to apply in their therapy to you know, continue treatment to improve their function. You know what's interesting is Dr. I asked Dr. Nolan in our interview, uh, you know, is, is anyone else doing research like this? And she said they're doing some research. Here's my question. What is different? What is unique? What is special about the research going on here, whether it's the exoskeleton or the goggles? Let's talk about it. What is different and unique? Some, a fair number of people are here tonight curious as to what the answer to that question is. Take a shot. I think that I appreciate this more because I was able to be fortunate enough to do my residency here, stay on. This is my 22nd year of practicing medicine. And I think that this is a unique place because we have a close collaboration with the research uh, foundation and then apply clinically. And I think our patients come to Kessler with a high hope and high expectation to achieve a lot of function. So we are able to collaborate with the scientists, with the research, and apply in clinical setting to be able to help our patients to achieve, maximize their recovery to improve their, their recovery. Anyone else on what's unique? I can add to that. You know, I think that you're a great example of that, Dr. Khan, because in our, I was reporting before that the prism goggle therapy is underused. Dr. Kong saw that there was a potential for creating a way, a pathway for patients to receive this. And her patients now are taking advantage of this treatment, having the therapist having been trained by our research program and through the, the donations and other resources available to our research program. Dr. Noel, you want to add anything? I'd like to add, it's, it's a truly translational program. Mm -hmm. So we take technology and we implement it right into the clinical setting. And then we have the multidisciplinary 
access to engineers, clinicians, the patient perspective, the family's perspective, the physical therapist's perspective. So not only do we take this technology and really implement it right into the patient setting, but we have a very complex multidisciplinary team and a lot of technology to really understand how we're changing the movements, how we're changing cogni mm -hmm. cognition, how we're changing many of the things in the quality of life of a patient so that we take a very well-rounded approach, but it's not at the level of just the laboratory. It's right into the clinical setting to make the most impact with the patient and the family for long-term recovery. Doctor, that's pretty unique. Is very it not? Unique. Yes, very unique. And then also the research is you know, often confined by the context. So here we have an inpatient as well as outpatient population. And then some interventions may work only in the inpatient, but not as an outpatient. But here we have an opportunity of offering the different uh, settings and then define which group mm. and then what stage of the stroke the, the certain intervention will work or not. So that's another uh, thing, like different from the other research. Let me tell you the other thing that's uh, unique about the foundation is you allow us to, to meet some fascinating people. This gentleman right here, Howard Rossman, um, uh, I was able to get to talk to him a little while ago. He was in the exoskeleton when I was talking to him, and I will say that I've been, I've been a broadcaster for a little more than 25 years. It was probably, it wasn't probably, it was one of the most compelling, um, powerful, emotional interviews that I've been a part of, and it was because of you. Um, Thank you. Um, talk to folks about your perspective, Howard, as to what the exoskeleton has done for you and what your hopes are moving forward because of it. You experienced a stroke when? On um, April 9th of this year, which will be 10 weeks Saturday. And I was able to get to a stroke center very quickly. And my choice of uh, acute care was, Kester was on top of my list, was approved by my insurance. And within 72 hours, I was here. Within 24 hours, I started therapy. And our family had seen the exocell skeleton being used in other people. And uh, we asked, can that be used on me? Am I a candidate? And within two weeks, the answer came back, yes based on my determination, my weight loss, and my uh, ability to want to do it. So I'm an engineer by training and a scientist, and having worked in an atmosphere where we had research on applied engineering, this is an excellent example where the research is being done, it's taken, put on the floor, and used, and get immediate feedback. So I am the beneficiary of motivating myself and getting me to get off my duff and get that left leg moving. And I'm learning as a result of this that uh, we can be motivated. The research of this facility is outstanding for many what you may consider minor issues or major issues to the victims of this disease. And the faster that the applied technology can be tested, even though it may not be totally approved, but they're willing to test a new idea with you, get it applied, into action and see whether it works. If it works, great. If it doesn't, try something else. But we've got a big, big fortune of having a research hospital, an acute hospital, outpatient, and getting the results immediately. So I would support the research efforts of this hospital and research facility wholeheartedly. I am a direct beneficiary, and so is my family.
Let's hear for Howard Rossman. Thank you. So I'm going to open up. After uh, Mr. Rossman, let's have some dialogue, not only about what's next, but about what you've heard. Put your hands up. Be a part of the conversation. This is an important conversation. Yes. Good question, so. Something I, would, I say frequently about this is that medical care, like any kind of practice, moves forward at the speed of trust. So people trust what they've been doing already. They don't necessarily trust something they weren't taught by their teachers or they didn't see other therapists doing. Um, there's mountains of studies that have been done in other countries. Germany, France, Switzerland, Japan, um, Denmark, we have colleagues. The United States is behind on using these goggles, and what we've been trying to show people is that it can be cost-effective, and it can also help individuals. Someone else, yes. <clears throat> There's some important information brought forward. And you know what I've been curious about here is, I mean, I only asked about, I asked about the economics of it, and the economics of the goggles clearly different from the ex economics of the exoskeleton, but how far away are we and what kind of reaction have you gotten from others in the research and healthcare community to the extraordinary work that's being done here? Talk to us, doctor. Let's open it up. Well, um, it's kind of an extension of the question. Uh, the answer to the question is that the barriers to this uh, research, particularly the prison, is that your healthcare environment is paying for the actually time, right? so that here you have to do certain hours, 30 minutes and then 10 working days. So the payment-wise, payments can be a barrier. Payments? Yes, to be, it becomes- Are you about insurance? <laughs> pretty much. Really? So, so that that could be one of the main barrier to, to be utilized as an outpatient or inpatient settings. However, that here we have a research setting, the collaboration was amazing, right. so that this was all, and that this is usually the first step. Yeah. So you document the outcomes, and then you fight through the system. You and document you, the findings, and then you fight yes, through the system. Yes, and then you will get the what's so called the <laughs> CPT code. That's a code for what? whatever you do. Medical procedure, there is a code. You have the billing <laughs> code. Right. And then ultimately it will be disseminated throughout the uh, system. This is complicated. It's complicated, but I'm very confident that we can do it. Well, you know, I'm going to turn things around. I recognize some people in the audience. Uh, David Knowlton is, 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 is here. Um, let me ask you something. Uh, tell everyone who you are. I'm David Knowlton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This guy knows more about healthcare than just about anybody I know. That's what happens when you're in public broadcasting too long. Uh, tell everyone who you are. Uh, now, don't say your name again, David. <laughs> uh, I was a deputy commissioner of health, and I headed the Healthcare Quality Institute in the state. Your reaction to what you've heard so far tonight? Well, I'm here because I know of Dr. Barrett's work. I chair the stroke uh, committee for the National Quality Forum, and uh, the work that's being done here isn't being done anywhere else. It's just amazing, and the, and you've got a perfect storm positively happening, because population health is growing, and we're turning people ten thousand people sixty five in America every day, so it's increasing the burden, and we're going to see more strokes unfortunately, and you have research that is saying that people don't have to suffer with a stroke, but that they can 
improved function is going to be critical. Hold on. You're saying you see an opportunity in where we are in the healthcare landscape? Yeah, because the old way of doing things where you build by the FIFA service system is going away. And we're going to look at populations of people, population health and, and a cohort of people who had strokes as a population, and there's nobody more capable of dealing with it than Kessler. So that's going to be good. Roger, are you surprised at all by what David said? You know, I, I live it every day and, and get to see the opportunities and the change of, um, uh, of a patient's life through the work that we do here. And so, you know, I'm never surprised at the, the end benefit and the, uh, the functional improvements that patients receive from the, the, the great care that's given at the Institute, but how the interventions are weaved into the care here at, from, the, from the research side into clinical care. And I think that makes a big difference. It really does. Yeah, but, but it's so interesting that David Knowlton is describing a healthcare environment, a landscape that we're in, in which he's saying um, that the work that is being done here lends itself to a positive response, potentially now more positive than ever before. David, am I misstating that? Reaction to that? Give me some reaction to that, Dr. Barrett. Well, I think that what, I, what really resonates with me about what you've said is there really are, are very vulnerable people who can, can teeter at the brink of health versus chronic disablement. And the kind of interventions that we're doing can make a complete difference. So it's not just that that person will experience a transformation, but that their family can experience yes. a much less burden in our society. And that's the population health. There are groups of people, a population of a group of people dealing with stroke, if I'm not mistaken, and that is what population health is supposed to be. So people could talk about population health, health in the abstract. This is it operationalized. Uh, Dr. DeLuca just reminded me that we actually have another piece of video dealing with the exoskeleton. Am I correct about that? Yeah, so Will you the, talk it through with us? Sure. So Let's go to it. It's the same patient. So you saw the same patient. Um, the first patient, patient was walking in traditional physical therapy with gait retraining or walk retraining. And this is that same patient in the exoskeleton. And the goal of showing these two videos is not to say this is good and this is bad. The goal is to show you here are two methods of retraining the ability to walk after a stroke. And what we're doing is investigating the differences and what the combination of those two therapies can do to maximize recovery. And so there are differences. There's differences in the level of physical assistance needed, and there's differences in the plane of movement, and there's differences in the initiation of movement. There's also differences in the balance of that movement. And so what we're doing is looking comprehensively at the differences between physical therapist-guided walk retraining and exoskeleton-guided walk retraining. Um, question, because I, I talked to Howard and I talked to Bo about this, and I have talked to others who have been in the exoskeleton. And I know everyone's different, but everyone who, on the panel who's been uh, a part of this, please jump in, this research. How long does it take? I don't know if I can say the average, because that's not fair. Everyone's dealing with different issues. Everyone's got a different personality, whatever. People don't, the first time, get up and well, tell us what the average or whatever that means in terms of really making progress. Or is everyone so, different? So clinically, after sustaining a stroke, I mean, simple things as sitting requires a tremendous effort. Because once your one part of your body becomes paralyzed, 
even sitting, you'll think that, okay, the patient will be able to sit. But once that, oftentimes that patients will fall to the, the affected side and even to sit, they require moderate 50% actually support from the therapist or the caregiver. Sitting is difficult. Even Stay sitting. right there. Bo, was sitting difficult for you in the beginning? No. In the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, yes. Okay, pick it up, doctor. I'm sorry. Then once you're able to sit, then we're, we're able to stand the patient and then do the balance training. And once your leg is very weak, then even to stand requires literally holding on with the therapist as well as at sometimes a two or three. And some patients who are severely affected cannot be even supported by the therapist. They have a machine that actually be able to hold the patient, and we call that a standing frame, and then get the upright posture to be able to achieve their balance and slowly increase the individual muscles to be able to stand on their own. Then once that the balance is improved, then we'll start the gait training so that you will be in the beginning stage of walking and then once the balance and the mm. strength improve, the patient will progress from more requiring less and less and help and then become a functional ambulator. Have you found that virtually everyone who has been in the exoskeleton has in fact made progress or do you find that some folks just can't do it? What have you found? Well, it depends. Actually, that um, it comes to actually, can I just rephrase? Who is sure. going to benefit most from this device, right? Then, in, a, in reality, moderate to severe impairment, which is uh, the people who really have difficulty sitting up or getting up, those are the people who actually benefit the most right. compared to the people who are mildly affected. This so, so I'm sorry, Bo is a good candidate because? <laughs> He could have been moderately affected. Howard was a good candidate because? Moderately affected. And the one who is not is? Uh, who may be able to walk with the walker, you know, five, six days after the stroke. And those patients actually, by doing that task by themselves without the exo, may be sufficient. But for the people who has moderate to severe you know, impairments, they do not have many options, and this is the best way to go. Go ahead, Karen. Tell me. So I think we're at the beginning of this, right? So even with the therapist, we started off by training four physical therapists to use this device in the inpatient They have to setting. be trained. They were trained. And I would say in the beginning, when they started looking and recruiting for patients in the hospital, they had this window, who they thought was appropriate. After about six weeks of using the device, they said, okay, maybe some more impaired individuals. Well, maybe some more capable individuals. And as their skills increased, so did our window of patients who they could use with the device. Because it's, okay. do we do a dual task? Are we practicing with someone who needs gait initiation or the ability to just start walking, the ability mm -hmm. to support one side? Or is it somebody who's just needs some help with sequencing or weight shifts? Yeah. Is it somebody who can independently ambulate, but maybe has some compensations that we want to correct? We want to get them a little bit more in plane or have a conversation while they walk and does their balance then change? And so there's many ways that we can use this as a tool to help with walking. So, I'm curious about something. Bo has been, do you have to, are there things that you have been doing to strengthen yourself so that when you get in and you are wearing, I shouldn't say get in, you don't get, you do get in the exoskeleton, you, you wear it. As you get stronger, because you were telling me before, you, there's a lot of physical therapy you're part of, right? As you get stronger, are you, is there any correlation 
between being physically stronger and being more effective wearing the exoskeleton? I mean, that, the exoskeleton, it, like, it helped me more. Like I said, before I, I wasn't using it, you know what I'm saying? I wasn't doing it, but once I started using that, oh, I got, got strong and it, it improved my walk. Had me stand up straight because, you know, instead of slumping over, I was standing up straight huh. walking. So. so the fact that he's getting better, I mean, the fact that he's getting stronger and doing rehab, is, does that have anything to do with the ability to use the exoskeleton more effectively, or is it the more you use it, the better you get because you're learning a technique. I, I hope I'm asking this the right way. And in my opinion, exoskeleton is another extension of what we do. So traditionally, you know, we provide strengthening exercises, balance training, all modality of exercise. And exoskeleton will provide one extension to okay. improve their balance, to be able to initiate their walking, be able to not to afraid to weight bear on the weak leg so that they're afraid to fall and then okay. be able to utilize this techn tech tech technology to help them walking. I'm gonna ask the same question about the goggles. Mm -hmm. Do people get better at using the goggles over time, and if so, how? Also, I think in a way your question is the same kind of question that you asked before about who's gonna be the best at doing this. So there's kind of two things that are exciting to say, and one is that the, you've he heard about spatial neglect and you've heard about paralysis, and actually those two things come together a little bit in the exoskeleton. So there are people who are not necessarily moderately weak, but they have neglect. And we're starting to look at how those people, because they have trouble getting up and being independent, would uh, respond to practice, because it's the practice, as you were just talking about, the practice in the device. And so in the same way, we think that the goggles provide practice or optimal training, so that when I'm wearing the goggles and I correct my movements, I can be practicing all the time. I have access to a different kind of movement ability. Do you, do you, do you recommend how long someone should have those on before it becomes a problem? <laughs> Well, we don't recommend that people walk around with them <laughs> you <laughs> or do drive. Not. They should not drive with the goggles on. Um, you did not so let Dr. Gooper to take them, did no, you? No, I didn't give him those goggles. I, <laughs> I, I made sure he gave them back at the end of the video. Uh, <laughs> so you should not have yeah, them should, on for, for... Just a short period of time, yeah. It's usually between 10 and 20 minutes. Um, the, the team who have been doing this most intensely actually are in the back intensively. And um, Kimberly Reha... Where's the team? Put your hands up. Put your hands up. Kimberly Reha and... Uh, Put your hands together. And, Put your hands together for the goggle team. Amy Chan, who is the inventor of the KF Cat. Uh, um, one of the key inventors of the KF, uh, the Kessler Foundation Prism Adaptation Training Device, they, they usually take between 10, 10 and 20 minutes. How long do you usually have yours on when you have them on? I'm the undergraduate, and I'm not as advanced as she is in training, um, and I've only used it as part of the study. I don't have a goggle. Would you like one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the, the point is, and getting them to everyone, get, well, it's a, put, put this in perspective so people understand what the study is mm -hmm. and, and how many people are in it. Put, sure. put everything in perspective. Sure. So for about 10 years, we've been doing a number of different federally funded and, and, um, and donor funded studies um, in 
looking at the effectiveness of the goggles, all right? So Dr. Chen, we were talking about before, and other collaborators with us, we published a couple different studies showing right. that they improved function. But then, as we said, Dr. Kong and others within our system who were involved, uh, clinicians in our system who were involved in the research, got excited about this, and they said, hey, we want to use this in our daily practice. And our colleagues overseas are using it. Yeah. Why shouldn't we be using it? Got it. By the way, anyone else who has a question want to react? Yes, sir. Question for Dr. Barrett. Hold on one second. Question for Dr. Barrett. I'm, I'm unclear as to why individuals should not wear the goggles longer the than, what did you say, 15 or 20 minutes? Hmm. And the second part of the question is, could you just expand a little bit on your recommendation that patients not drive using the goggles. <laughs> With great, the goggles great, on. Great I was question. Kind of yeah, I was kind of joking because the goggles essentially induce, a, they, they create a distorted environment, right? They're, some people say it's the cheapest virtual reality. I mean, I don't know if anybody would ever pay to, to see the, look, it's a lecture room. It's not, uh, it's not an exciting virtual reality. It's just everything is a little bit displaced. So the joke I was kind of making is that you don't want to wear them all the time because there is a potential for accidents. But the other more serious way of answering your question is that in the, in the past, we would use these kind of goggles in therapy, and we would put them on patients and just let them do their daily therapy, but it probably wasn't intensive enough. So what is kind of a, 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 an idea or a theory that informs the exoskeleton as well as the goggles is briefer periods of more intensive work that the brain has to do. Got a follow-up question right here, yes. How is it determined who will participate in these studies, this research? Is it insurance-based, or is it based upon need? So for the robotic Thank exoskeleton you. study, that's a great question. So um, it's a research study. So it's Kessler Foundation goes through the uh, IRB, or the review board for research studies, and it's an approved study. So anybody who participates is consented to participate. We recruit from inpatients within Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation West Orange and also Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Saddlebrook. So we recruit from the inpatients and they're recommended from physical therapists. And so the physical therapists who work with the patients every day, who know the patients, who also understand some of the qualifications needed, the strength needed, and the, the height and weight requirements to be in the device, they know those, and then they can approach the patients to participate. And then as Mr. Rossman said, he saw the robot walking in the hallway. And so when you see the robot walking in the hallway and you know you need some physical assistance walking, you say, hey, how do I get in that? And so that's, that was one of his questions to his therapist, who was an exotherapist. And Melissa is here today. Um, thank you so much for coming. And she's trained to use the exoskeleton. And so she knows about it. She can advocate for it. And she knows which patients would be appropriate. Howard's therapist is here, right? Say that one. Howard's therapist is here? Yes. What's he really like? <laughs> oh, never mind, I'm sorry. <laughs> Any other questions? Any follow-ups? Yes, young lady right here. I will. Oh, hey, how you doing, Karen? Take that microphone right there. By the way, Karen Tucker, a good friend from the Adler Aphasia Center. So our vice president for research is very invested in cognitive issues. And so speech and cognition and any secondary benefits of the EXO are a very passionate part of, of not just mobility, but also all the other scientists at Kessler Foundation. So it is physically moving the patient. And so we are starting with looking at how it affects quality of life and those movements. But absolutely, um, we've looked at the FIM, which is a measurement 
on cognition and mobility from admission to discharge. Um, we saw some improvements in both areas, both mobility and cognition, during the inpatient stay. But we need to really look at that further. And I completely agree. There's definitely connection, and we need to look at that. Um, we have a study in pediatrics looking at the exoskeleton. And what we look at in that study during the inpatient stay is not only movement, but quality of life, participation, some depression scales. And so we're really looking more well-rounded at how it's not just affecting the mobility, but how it's affecting the patient overall during their inpatient stay. Good, a couple minutes left. Yes. Uh, good evening. Do you think strokes are random? And if you don't think they're random, do you have any preventative suggestions? Oh, wow. That's, that's an excellent question. Do you want to address it? Great sure. question. I mean, stroke uh, has a many risk factors that there are, that you could divide it into controllable and non-controllable. So controllable factors, blood pressure, smoking, obesity, controlling your, your blood sugars, exercise and diet, those are all things that we could control to minimize our risk. There are uncontrollable risk factors like genetics, sometimes a race, age, or the, the gender. These things are something that we cannot change. And I think that with the education, and then I think that with the, the, the technology that advanced and then pharmacological interventions, we could try to minimize individual risk factors to try to decrease the chance of sustaining a stroke. And I think that education is a key to success. Okay. Now that the awareness is increasing, I think that there's a lot of uh, education going around. So I think that the, the controlling the blood pressure and then cessation of the smoking also is, is trying to minimize the stroke to, um, to sustain. Anyone else on, on this question? Yes, so if you want to give a gift to yourself, that will be an exercise. In the anniversary, you want to buy the gift, that will be the exercise. So the exercise is a pill which can prevent stroke. A exercise so is a pill exercise, that could prevent. Exercise. So how much? That's the question, right? How much? So if you are in your 60s, I recommend, not only me, it's American College of Sports Medicine. So six times a week. If you're in your 70s, seven times a week. If you're in 80s, eight times a week, <laughs> as, as simple as that. So, well, but in general, we recommend at least uh, five days a week and uh, 30 minutes of aerobic exercise, which means either walking, jogging, swimming, uh, elliptical, Got that it. kind of, a, not the weightlifting the aerobic. type of exercise. Yes. Yeah. Carl, you, I saw your face react to, uh, to, the, to that. You want to comment on that? Every neurologist who had worked with me for 40 years at Columbia Presbyterian would say, stroke? You don't have any risk factors. I said, well, age. And they go, well, yeah. But I mean, it's the same story. You exercise on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. Couch potatoes were not friends of ours. I mean, we really had an attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and see how that landed me. So in some cases, we can't explain it, can we? Yes. Correct. Well, Correct. So it took only a year for Columbia to finally explain that I um, had an autoimmune disease in which I ate. Well, it's not very technical. Um, I attacked my arteries 
in my brain. My favorite organ? I mean, it was just a mess. So I had, I had arteritis just of my cranium. Like people who have uh, rheumatoid arthritis, they, they set up antibodies against the joint. Mine was against my arteries. So it, there is an explanation, but it was very hard to diagnose. And we're rewriting the protocol with the patient's perspective as the new sort of addition of the protocol. How to find these rare causers, causes of stroke which are not on the list. You can help a lot of people. Um, any final questions, comments? Uh, yes, gentleman back there. Yes, get that microphone. Last question, yes. So that's a really good question. The, the dosing varies, um, and it varies based on the, the needs of the patient. And so patients in the inpatient setting may only be able to walk seven steps, five steps, 10 steps. Um, and so the dosing is based on what their ability is. Generally, genu uh, generally we have um, 30 minutes of utilization of the exoskeleton. And in, within that time, they can walk anywhere from seven minutes to 25 minutes. It's about average, I would say. And they can walk anywhere from 200 steps to sometimes well over 1,000 steps. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's the dosing that we're looking for, not necessarily the time, um, but we're fitting that within their clinical three hours. And so they're getting the gait training in the device. And so the goal is to get them 30 minutes of exo contact time for gait retraining. So that could be standing balance, could be gait initiation, it could be sit to stand. Um, and so we're trying to get them 30 minutes of contact time. And what we usually get is a pretty good dosing of steps within that contact time. Um, as we wrap up, um, before we bring up Roger to uh, close the, the discussion formally, next steps, how optimistic are you? Take a shot. Jump in. Oh, very optimistic. Because? You know, we're already being approached by hospitals and inpatient rehabilitation facilities all over the country to help them learn about this approach. We're being approached by the therapists who are excited about it. Very optimistic. Go ahead, doctor. It's not only nationally, it's actually internationally. Yep. I'm pleased to tell you that uh, this Czech, Czech Republic, they just purchased this uh, whole kit to do the prism in their country. And then Asia countries, actually the whole entire manual is uh, translated into Korean and Taiwanese, this, I mean Chinese. So congratulations, Steph. Final comments. I think that I was uh, fortunate enough to be part of the research, uh, the project that they, we published. And then I feel that it's important that when we uh, publish in our, our major medical journal, that we're increasing the awareness to other cl clinical pra practitioners to be able to utilize this method and learn about it and apply to their clinical practice. And then we also, Kessler being a teaching hospital, we teach our young physicians to be able to you know, participate in research, we emphasize, and then try to practice uh, cutting edge medication to, to be able to help our patients. And before I go to you, uh, Dr. Nolan, Bo, uh, reason you're so optimistic about the future. Why are you so optimistic about the future? Uh, I said, well, you know, 
Because I know some of my goal is before 2016, though, is be back at 100%. You can be back 100%? Yeah. By the way, Bo is actually training fighters today, future champions. He is. <laughs> Final comments? You have anything you want to share before we... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you looking at me? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I am, Carol. I'm looking this, at you. It's not a, my, I, I'm my, right here. I apologize. I'm right here. My husband was said this is not a good idea to have her the last question because she's going to be an essay answer. No. But the bottom line is the referrals from knowledgeable neurologists to the other disciplines, occupational therapy, physical therapy, all these people. If you don't have a team, you don't have a solution. And I've always been shocked by this, oh, I never referred anybody to, you know, why? It's a neurological disease. And I'd go, the solution mm. is multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary. I don't know what this, sure. the cool word is right now. Oh, that's, mm -hmm. by the way, that was very concise. By the way, let's hear it for Carol and Bo being part of this. <laughs> Dr. Mel, I'll, I'll give you the final word on the future. Go ahead. if you keep yes. asking questions, you keep being interested in finding better solutions to help your family, to help patients, to help people that you know who've had a stroke, there are so many people whose lives have been unfortunately affected by stroke, that if you keep asking questions and you keep challenging us to find better solutions, we will find those better solutions. And so staying involved, asking questions, that's what's going to help drive the future and change the face of recovery for someone who's had a stroke. Put your hands together for a great panel. And uh, let me just say, from my perspective, it has been an honor to be a grantee um, of the Kessler, of Kessler Foundation. We'll continue to do meaningful public broadcasting that you will see that I'm confident will continue to educate and inform our viewers on every platform that we are on. And that is because of the support of the foundation and um, the programming we do tonight. You'll see very soon. We have a couple more interviews that we'll be doing tonight. And it is my honor, my pleasure to have formally and officially close the program to bring up the President and Chief Executive Officer of Kessler Foundation, Mr. Roger DeRose. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to take just a few moments to close out tonight's session. Um, first, thanks to Steve, who comes into our homes uh, several times a week on New Jersey public television and bringing us new content and information that's happening here within the state of New Jersey. And uh, also to the great panelists, Dr. Barrett, Dr. Nolan, Dr. O'Park, Dr. Kong, our patients who acted as testimonials, Howard and Carol, Audrey and, uh, and Bo. I hope tonight that you are able to see a new model of integration the integration of how we take research interventions and work so closely with the hospital in terms of bringing it into Kessler Institute for Care and then going full circle and bringing it back again until we refine it to the point that they can use it on a regular basis and get repeatable results. And not just stop there, but take it into other New Jersey health organizations, take it into other uh, hospital settings, healthcare settings throughout the United States and around the world. You know, we, we heard from John DeLuca that there'll be 800,000 new strokes this year in the United States, one every 40 seconds, John said. 
leading cause of disability in the United States and uh, one of the uh, uh, third largest cause of death. And I know the question was asked about how, this, how strokes discriminate, and they don't discriminate. They don't discriminate against gender, against race, against income level, and they don't even discriminate against your political affiliation. <laughs> so whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent, um, although with this presidential election, I think that we are probably gonna see more than 800,000 strokes depending <laughs> on the outcome. Um, you know, we, we have uh, such an important job to do here in terms of disseminating this information globally, uh, not only in the United States and Jersey, but globally. And you're looking at thought leaders on this setting here tonight. Individuals that go out to national conferences, go to international conferences, that have done TED Talks to share this information with uh, clinicians and practitioners so that we can help change the life of a patient. Imagine a grandmother, 65 years old, who suffered a stroke, has all of the symptoms of spatial neglect that we just talked about tonight, but has not been properly diagnosed or treated, looking at a family album of treasured memories and only being, see, being able to see half of those memories because they can't see everything that is in it. And then going through 10 sessions of the PRISM adaptive therapy that we saw today or we heard about today, and then being able to see her entire world again. Her ability to write, her ability to read, her ability not to bump into walls and fall and have further injuries. Take that same patient and uh, if they were not, and they had paralysis and they did not have the ability to uh, use an exoskeleton and work with a physical therapist and take 10 steps, 20 steps, 30 steps and feel completely exhausted by the end of the day. And then put them into an exoskeleton, a robot, and be able to take 300 to 400 to 500 steps a day. Imagine the efficiency, the effectiveness, our ability to, to move that person through the healthcare system so that they can achieve complete independence or as, as independent as possible so that they can be reintegrated with their family, with their community, and with the workforce if they are workers. So we, we have a lot of work to do yet here at Kessler Foundation. So my hope is that this has been educational and informative for you. I, I would ask you this, and Glenn talked about it uh, very lightly, and, and, and that is that I hope that when you leave here tonight, that when you go home and talk to your spouse or your significant other or perhaps the trustee that invited you here tonight, that you will give consideration to a gift to support this type of research. And, and the reason it's so important is that we need to collect pilot data on some of the very early interventions. And that pilot data leads to further information that we can get when we use that pilot data to win national grants at the federal level at NIH and Department of Defense, as well as uh, in terms of our ability to win state grants and other organizations that fund the type of research that we're, we're involved in. And I would tell you this, that any gift that you direct to this type of research, 100% of it will go to that research. Now, a lot of folks say, well, how is that possible? And the possibilities are because of the power of our endowment 
which Glenn talked about as a main income source that funds our infrastructure. It funds our administration. So that when dollars are directed to an effort like this, 100% of every dollar can go into that research to support the great work that's taking place on the stage that you heard about tonight. So it's my hope that you'll never need the great services that are provided by Kessler Institute, the great care that they give here, or the interventions that we are working on today or in the future, whether that's in stroke that you heard about tonight or whether it's in spinal, care, spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury or multiple sclerosis or any of the other neuromuscular conditions that we're involved in. But if you do come here, you can be assured that you're gonna get probably the best care in the world. And it's right here in our own backyard in West Orange, New Jersey. Thank you so much for coming tonight. I hope that you'll stay for, for some dessert and talk to us about any questions that you might have about the organization or the work you heard here tonight. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.